We don't accept the principle of presumed consent in sex. Why do we accept it in politics? I'm torn about how this interview made me feel. I'm delighted that such an esteemed and established fellow as George Monbiot agreed to join my fledgling podcast. But it's also given me an existential dread as he speaks about the doom of the planet and the conspiratorial damage being done by the powers that be. It is, as George points out, infuriating that we're being asked to do every little bit to help the environment as we should, while huge companies are getting away without paying their taxes and polluting the environment ever more. I hate signalling any kind, whether it be virtue or victim signalling, especially when it comes from a big company. Big companies don't care. Companies don't care. They're not real things. They're abstract concepts devised to make as much money as possible for the company. And I have no real issue with that because that's how much of the world works. And I like the idea of being able to build up my own business if I wanted to. But I can't stand the way that a lot of companies put a public face on their Twitter profiles and adverts and make like multicolored flags representing something to do with someone's sexuality that somehow makes them seem more human and accepting. All we really want is for them to pay their taxes, stop polluting the environment. Anyway, George talks a lot about that and the way that complex systems of finance, the climate and various other things are intricately linked in ways we can't fathom. I don't agree with everything and push back on a couple of bits and pieces that I think are probably subjective and open to discussion, but I think we have a great chat. Now, I'm nothing if not a people pleaser and I'm aware that there are a great range, or there is even a great range of you uh, listeners with different tastes and different things you want to listen to. If the ideological and political stuff does get a bit heavy, skip to the final 20 minutes where I ask George about his stories as an investigative journalist. They're utterly mad. Like when he went into a poisoned coma after being stung by exotic hornets or when he was sentenced to life imprisonment in Indonesia. There are more too. It's just outrageous some of the experiences George has had. Go to monbio.com to find out more, follow him on Twitter and pick up his new book, Regenesis, Feeding the World without devouring the planet. Coming up are episodes with Mike Rinder, one of the biggest names in ex-Scientology, and Michael Shermer on why we fall for conspiracy theories and why some of them turn out to be real. But now you're on the edge of a cliff and about to fall off it with George Monbiot. Did you see George Monbiot? Is it Monbiot? Monbiot. Monbio, okay, more French sounding. What's what's Monbio from? Is it yeah French? Well, it's interesting. We're, we're not totally sure, but we think um, it could be a Bantu name. We, I've got a West African ancestor who um, seems to have come through France, and it's a Bantu name which appears to have acquired a silent T. But we're, we're not sure about that. But that's our best guess. There's only twelve of us in the world, and we're all closely related. We've all got six fingers on the left hand. <laughs> I can see that. Um, George Monbiot. <laughs> did you see that Russian um, propaganda thing where they showed uh, it was that Holly and the guy with the white hair and they had uh, a competition where you could win a thousand pounds, a caller would win a thousand pounds or they have their energy bills paid for them. And so they got and it got on energy bills and they won and they were screaming with happiness because it was so much better than winning a thousand pounds. And that's God. been shown around Russia at the moment. Did you see that? <laughs> No, I haven't. We're in a bit of a pickle at the moment, aren't we? I mean, I've got these. Um, I've got heated gloves that I keep wearing. I'm not. I haven't got them on right now because I've been told heat the human and not the the room. What What's going on at the moment? Are we in trouble? 
I mean, it's, it is amazing. The First off, the fossil fuel companies have been making money hand over fist for many years, um, and they exploit the situation which Putin has created to ensure that they make even more. Now, what we could do in this country is introduce a windfall tax on those enormous, unprecedented, I mean, humongous profits. You know, you could you could scrape just a bit of those profits and you could um, subsidise everyone's energy bill to the point at which it's no longer hurting. But no, of course not, because we have a government which is a kind of Manchurian candidate for big corporations and foreign oligarchs. That's basically who it exists to serve. So it's never going to tax um, those big oil companies. In fact, um, it's done everything it can to roll the red carpet out for them and to make life easier and, you know, pushing us not only towards destitution, but also towards climate breakdown. So instead, it's borrowing the money, which will be used to some extent to mitigate the impact of the bills, but not to the extent that it's actually going to stop people being pushed into destitution. Um, and we'll have to pay that back from our taxes. So in other words, it's a, a shift of tax from some of the most profitable corporations on earth who are profiteering. You know, they, they, they're exploiting this opportunity to make just humongous sums. Instead of them being taxed, all of us are being taxed. And even so, huge numbers of people just aren't going to be able to cope. They cannot afford these bills on top of the scarcely regulated rents in this country and the um, utility bills from other companies which have been privatised and again are racking us um, it is rip off Britain we're, we're, we're being fleeced by some very nasty corporations what does um, windfall is one of those sort of what buzzwords that you, what does that actually mean for sort of uh, economics for dummies people like me well when corporations are making a massive profit um, and ideally, when they do so at the uh, cost to society or a cost to the natural world, um, you then tax them on some of that excess money that they've been making. Um, now, you know, we, we have a situation where because of privatisation and because of deregulation, even that would not be enough. You know, with the way things are set up, we are just sitting ducks for exploitation. But at least that's one step and it's such an obvious step as well you know when they're making so much money what's what's their argument for say trusts or the conservative government what is a conservative argument for not doing that i suppose it's to make the companies happy well they don't do arguments anymore they do assertion <laughs> so they say this is the right policy why is it the right policy? It is the right policy. <laughs> and I mean, seriously, that's the way it works. You, you know, when, when Trust stands up in Parliament, she does not try to justify what she's doing. She just makes these these statements saying, you know, this is the way forward. We're going to, uh, it's going to be painful, but we're going to uh, have a glorious future of economic growth and all the rest of it. And there's no attempt anymore to try to say A, B, uh, a leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, and this is my coherent approach, coherent strategy. This is why it works. Here's the evidence. Forget it. You know, that's not how it works anymore. It's just sort of like, this is what I say, and that's all we need. Of course, I mean, Truss herself 
she's a phenomenally stupid person and she has always struggled to put together coherent arguments for anything i mean she was very much on my radar when she was the environment secretary in this country 2015 2016 and she was the worst environment secretary we've ever had now that is saying something i mean that's a really when you consider the competition people like owen patterson and andrea ledsom you know that that that's really it sounds like i'm stretching it but i'm not yeah you know, I mean, so um defra the environment department in this country is the craggy island of our politics it's it's a punishment posting where the really rubbish politicians get sent because it's considered peripheral to government programs because you know it's only in the natural world i mean it's only the entire basis of our survival who cares and so you get these terrible people dumped in there and she was by far the worst and and I, at the time i wrote uh you know r- reporting what people who knew her were saying you know civil servants people working with her were saying which is just she's completely obdurate she she can't absorb anything that anyone's saying she um won't change her opinion regardless of the weight of evidence she just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over as if repetition will make it right and now here she is as prime minister and she's doing the same and you know there is no attempt to to justify these policies there's no attempt to create a structured and coherent argument a because there isn't one and b because even if there was one she would be incapable of making it she does she would make for a good cult leader i think that sort of just repetition would do a lot of cults on here well well, she is a, a, she's actually a cult follower reagan or thatcher uh well it's actually i mean reagan and thatcher you know they weren't the inventors of this i mean what, what we're talking about here that there is an ideology it is a coherent ideology but you know the politicians even thatcher and reagan even people who were much better speakers and much more coherent than truss they themselves were just repeating ideas which had come from elsewhere um it's this thing called neoliberalism which was um first began to emerge in the late 1930s it was popularized in particular by friedrich hayek and ludwig von von mises um was picked up by other people milton friedman is a a famous example um and it was to begin with this utterly fringe and crazy belief you know people thought the neoliberals were were bonkers and they were right but um because it was highly convenient to the richest people on earth basically saying you know wealth is a sign of the grace of money bestowed on you those who have money are those who deserve to have money those who do not have money are those who don't deserve to have money it's a sort of it's got a very strong religious quasi calvinist um, aspect to it um and um and anything which interferes with the discovery of that natural hierarchy of the deserving people and the undeserving people things such as tax and regulation and trade unions and protests should be deemed illegitimate and should be swept out of the way so that we can have this pure market system where buying and selling determines who the rightful winners and the rightful losers are and and if you are a loser you deserve to be a loser no one should help you there should be no social safety net no economic safety net public services should be basically destroyed because the market will will sort it out instead and thatcher and reagan you know, powerful orators as they were 
were simply recycling, in particular Friedrich Hayek's ideas. Um, so in The Road to Serfdom, but especially his book, The Constitution of Liberty, which has become a kind of Bible for people like Thatcher and Truss and, and those surrounding Truss. Um, and it's completely mad. I mean, it's a totally deranged tract. Really, really crazy stuff. If we're a bit kinder to, to, to them, is the, is the underlying ideology, whether it works or not, is it not what's good for the richest should prop up the whole of society, even if that doesn't work? Yes. Um, I mean, there is that trickle-down aspect to it, um, which is completely impervious to, to all experience. Um, you know, we know that it doesn't work like that, as we've seen with, with the mini-budget, where, you know, we cut the taxes for the richest people, and that's going to create an economic boom. No, it tanks the economy. Um, you know, if rich, very rich people have more money, they just stick it in the Cayman Islands. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to use it um, in ways which is going to benefit anyone else in this country. Obviously, if poorer people have more money, well, then you know they are going to spend it into our own economy. Now, I'm not a Keynesian, but you know I understand the logic of of Keynesian economics that that does work. I mean, the problem with it is it generates endless growth, which is you know, a massive environmental issue. But, um, you know, trickle down evidently does not work, but it is the justification that's used. So in the Constitution of Liberty, Hayek says, you know, whatever the rich do and whoever they are, they are right. They are, they are by the very nature that they are rich, they are right. And everything they do should be regarded as worthy and 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 right and and you know this in, applies whether you've inherited your money whether you've stolen your money you know however you got it the very fact that you have money makes you a leader of society who should be treated as such your the path should be cleared for you and then everyone else should be following in your wake i mean it's all there and it's a really really crazy book it's a sort of non-fiction equivalent of ayn rand's atlas shrugged and and those two books are, are really the pillars of neoliberal belief um a alongside you know sort of less well-known tracks and milton friedman's work has been very important in that respect now this stuff couldn't take off by itself you know it's, it's just too outre it's too too crazy it's just so revolting um it doesn't reflect the desires and aspirations of the vast majority of people so it had to be relentlessly promoted and drummed into our minds until we just came to see it as the water in which we swim or the sewage in which we drown which turns out to be far far closer to, to the reality and and so how do you do that well starting with the mont pelerin society in 1947 and then building a whole network of fake think tanks, organisations which call themselves think tanks, but are really just lobby groups for big money. Um, and then ac fake academic institutes, penetrating the media, the richest people on earth, literally at the time, the richest people on earth poured huge amounts of money into creating a kind of neoliberal international, a, a political movement, which was the opposite of the grassroots movements coming from the left. This was entirely top-down. It was built by the very richest people. And in particular, the think tanks that they supported. So in the UK, we've got the Institute of Economic Affairs, we've got the Adam Smith Institute, we've got the Taxpayers Alliance, we've got the Centre for Policy Studies, we've got Policy Exchange. Um, these 
have been the most powerful instruments for projecting that crazy neoliberal agenda. And in all those cases I mentioned, they do not reveal who their funders are. Uh, and yet their views just happen to coincide with the demands of big tobacco, big oil, foreign oligarchs, including the very worst. Um, and lo and behold, when there are leaks and US filings and other ways of finding out, we discover that they've been funded by, oh, yes, big oil and big tobacco and foreign oligarchs, etc. Who, who, who are some of the companies, you know, you mentioned at the beginning as well, that, that are, because I th feel like why not name and shame a little bit, you know, who, who are destroying the environment, who are uh, making prices rise and are not paying their way? Well, among the funders of some of these think tanks, we know there are BP, Exxon, um, uh, the tobacco companies, Philip Morris as was, I think, is, is it called Altria now? Japan International Tobacco, uh, British Imperial Tobacco. I mean, it's, it's a very long list, but then there's all the um, um, influence of the US billionaires in particular, um, Charles Koch, Robert Mercer, um, the Atlas Network, which um, distributes funding to a whole series of these dark money think tanks. Um, we don't know the full story. We don't know everyone who funds them. You know, we're just, we got partial information generally from leaks and US filings and the tobacco archives where the tobacco companies were forced by a class action lawsuit to um, place their documents in the public domain. And suddenly we discovered in those documents the names of loads of these think tanks you know, who'd been arguing uh, out of the goodness of their heart um, against tobacco regulation and saying, you know, this would be very painful for the poorest people in society. You know, and those are the people we care about. You know, if you if you were to stop tobacco advertising or 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 change the packaging on, on tobacco products or not have them on on display in shops, you know, then this is going to really harm poor people. And that's who we care about. Obviously, poor people. Yeah. Yeah. Poor people. I met one once. Yeah. Yeah, I walked over him, of course, because he was in the way. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. So, so climate change. One of the things you are known for, you know, researching and working on is is climate change. Uh, can can I just can I stop you there? Oh, go on. And yes, yes. Calling it climate change is like calling an invading army unexpected visitors. <laughs> it's it's just a completely inadequate term for what we're talking about. We're talking about breakdown. We're talking about collapse, climate destruction, climate chaos, climate collapse, climate crisis. But you know, climate change is is one of these terms I'm constantly fighting because it's like 
it's like how do we absorb this framing you know where does it come from why, why do we end up talking bollocks i mean i'm not accusing you of talking bollocks obviously but <laughs> just just adopting these terms which just do not in any way describe what we're talking about so sorry yeah carry on climate breakdown is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what you just said i was interviewing richard dawkins once um which god, god that sounds like i'm showing off now but i was i was interviewing <laughs> richard and i said um so richard it was, i think it's the only time i've said you're known as the similar thing i should stop saying that you're known for writing about religion and he, he said no no I, i'm known for writing about science and i went oh sorry <laughs> sorry and i was shit scared for the next half an hour about getting anything slightly wrong so yeah. i will never now say to someone you're i've done it twice now and it hasn't worked either time yeah no exactly exactly it's, it's a formula it's a formula for failure <laughs> it is but the the point that you you make it, it actually speaks to what i was going to say which is like there are certain topics that i always want to talk about on this podcast and i know they're a bit worthy and for some reason that can sometimes fail to capture the public um uh, you know what's the i just lost my word. imagination 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 <laughs> the public imagination see i am flustered yeah. now. <laughs> i've thrown you off balance haven't i <laughs> yeah i have yeah if i do a video or something about scientology or even woke culture or whatever i know that like, that's a big hitter and i'm thinking before talking to you okay how am i going to frame this oh yeah big big companies screwing us and stuff like that but just going climate change that might oh people might go oh, i'm a bit bored of that and so i think you're you're absolutely right i mean so so what is what is going on? What would you call it? I mean, I, the bigger picture is Earth systems collapse. I mean, that's what we're looking at. And so everything important to us is a complex system. Human brain, the human body, human society, global finance, global food network, um, the atmosphere, the oceans, every single ecosystem. They're all complex systems. Now, a complex system is a very specific definition. Um, it, it means a system which has got emergent and adaptive characteristics, which forms through spontaneously through billions of interactions and creates self-organization out of those interactions. It's completely counterintuitive. You know, it doesn't behave in any way that you would expect if you were to extrapolate from a simple system you know, like a plumbing system or an, or, or an electric circuit, you know, it just does not work like that at all. And there's a huge gap in our education because, you know, unless like me, you've, you've got, uh, you had an e ecological component in your degree, you're just never exposed to complex systems. There's a few degrees where, where they mention them, but the great majority are schooling, university. We'd never find out what the most important things on earth are. And, and the thing about complex systems is um, that they they self-organize in these really extraordinary and bizarre and uh, sort of an almost lifelike ways. They're they're, they're very peculiar, um, and um, within a certain range of stress, um, they self-organize to maintain equilibrium, to sustain their stability. Um, and to damp down shocks which might afflict the system and and that's basically you know, why why you and i are alive because of the the way in which the complex system which is us um su sustains us um the the extraordinary sort of homeopathic uh, sorry homeopathic um um oh god what's the name um ho homeostatic <laughs> homeopathic <laughs> homeostatic properties of the human body and stuff you know which emerge from um, uh, the, the way our remarkably complex systems work um, and but also why earth systems are there at all you know they they are they're these self-organized systems but 
another property they have is that as their resilience breaks down, you know, if they're constantly degraded, they are the those self organizing properties that normally damp down stress start to amplify stress instead and start to transmit shocks across the network. And, um, and then suddenly they will reach a tipping point, basically a critical threshold, and uh, which can be, they can be pushed over it by a relatively small shock if they've lost enough of their resilience, and then they collapse suddenly, they just fall off a cliff edge. You know, it's not a, not a linear and gradual process of degradation. You know, you can have the degradation, degradation, and then suddenly, bang, it's gone. And once they've collapsed, it's almost impossible to reverse that collapse because there's a further principle that kicks in called um, hysteresis, which means that the energy required to reverse a collapse is greater than the energy required to cause it. So if you look at the global financial system, which is also a complex system, you know, we we catalyzed it, but we, we don't create it because it, it operates under those um, sort of spontaneous self-organizing principles of all complex systems. Um, but it was its resilience was stripped out by corporate strategies in, in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and, um, and, and what happened with it was that a relatively small shock, which was the US subprime crisis, you know, much smaller than a lot of the fluctuations that had uh, undergone in the past, pushed it to within an inch of its critical threshold. And it required this massive global government bailout to push it back into its safe, or a safe-ish space. And, and so even though it hadn't actually collapsed, you could still see hysteresis at work because far more money was required to save the system than had been required to jeopardize the system. If it had collapsed, then no amount of money would have restored it. It would have taken years and years before we'd got back on our feet. Now, with Earth systems, you know, once they go, that's it. That's the end of the habitable planet. You know, and, and they're very closely interconnected. You know, we say, all right, well, we're studying, cli I'm studying climate and I'm studying oceans and I'm studying ecosystems and I'm studying soil, which is incidentally an ecosystem, and I'm studying human society. But they're all, you know, the, nature recognizes no such boxes. You know, nature doesn't compartmentalize and say, now I'm dealing with the climate. You know, they're, they're all intimately connected. So if one goes down, there's a domino effect. And that's what we've seen with previous mass extinctions. So if you look at the Permo-Triassic extinction, 251 million years ago, you probably won't remember it. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> um, um, it, uh, it, in the Permian, there, were, there was a very rich ecosystems with a very large number of large animals on Earth and forests and all sorts of amazing things. Then we believe as a result of a series of very large volcanic eruptions, which released a lot of carbon dioxide, uh, but also a lot of acid rain. Um, we saw a sort of severe attack on, on um, some ecosystems. They began to collapse. And what seems to have happened from what we understand is there was a domino effect of cascading collapse. As some ecosystems went down, the others went down. And we ended up with 90% of, of all species being deleted from the fossil record, in other words, becoming extinct. And very few large-bodied animals of any kind came through. 
you know, it, it was a, just a tiny proportion of those that had been there before. And it then took tens of millions of years for Earth systems to rebuild themselves and biodiversity to reach the point that it had reached before that extinction. And you can you can see in the geological strata, you know, so life, 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 suddenly, bang, nothing, gone, dead. And that is Earth systems collapse. Now, we evolved, like most of the species that surround us, in a particular equilibrium state of Earth systems, a state sustained by those systemic properties. If we collapse out of that state, we collapse into a different equilibrium state, where a state which, by contrast to the current one, is uninhabitable for the ones which evolve, the species which evolve, like us, in the current equilibrium state. Are we, I suppose, is part of why some people don't get their heads around this, because we're always sort of teetering on the edge of world collapse, whether it be like the nuclear arms war and stuff in the 60s and 70s didn't people always grow up with that existential dread we might be just teetering over the edge and and when it finally is potentially happening people won't listen i mean that's part of it but it's just yeah we don't get our heads around it because our heads aren't confronted with it you know if, if we were confronted with what's going on um to with our systems you know with climate breakdown with ecological breakdown uh, with ice shelf breakdown, you know, with so many things are happening all at the same time. If we were confronted with this as regularly, with as much explanation as we are with the environmental, uh, sorry, the economic shocks which affect us, you know, which we're all very aware of, and we began this podcast talking about, and, you know, everyone knew what I was talking about, I'm sure, because we're all living it at the moment. Um, if we had that amount of information, that amount of discussion in the media about environmental issues, then absolutely we'd be onto it and we'd understand it and we'd talk about it all the time. But it's because it's endlessly relegated and marginalised, um, pushed to the bottom of the news agenda, um, that we we not switched onto it. It's, it's, it. Is it also maybe a nihilism? Uh, maybe this is being nihilistic, but but that people imagine that they'll probably be all right for their lives and no one wants to talk about this but maybe they don't really care about apart from their kids but they don't care about their kids 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 is that happening i mean some people but i think you know certainly most younger people you know either are deliberately blanking it out or are frankly terrified because uh, what is your prognosis i mean what do you think you know where are we in 20 years 30 what what's the timeline well one of the problems with complex systems is you don't know where the critical thresholds are until you bump into them um, until you cross them and and that's that's always the case i mean that that i mean, I mean we you know we've learned a lot more you know about where the critical thresholds are for the human body you know we, we know that with um a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees um we're probably cooked and we know that um, um below what is it 32 degrees or body temperature um you you we, we, we're probably frozen you know you die of hypothermia something like that um so we've got a fairly good idea of where our tipping points are of where our critical thresholds are within the human body but the study of earth systems is far more rudimentary you know we don't have nearly such a good idea in fact i mean the study of earth systems is comparatively recent yeah, you know, it was um, 
it was extremely controversial even suggesting that we have earth systems and james lovelock started discussing gaia theory he was considered to be crazy because it's like well of course you know why would it work like that are you suggesting there's some sort of god making it all happen and what he was trying to explain was no it just works like all complex systems work this is how it is i mean some people intuitively grasped it um there was a very interesting uh, U.S. government report following the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Um, um, one of many Dust Bowls, incidentally, but the only one that people remember, um, which was a classic example of complex system collapse. Um, the soil, which is a complex ecosystem, had been degraded and degraded and degraded, principally by overplowing. Then it got hit by a drought, the external shock, not you know, much smaller than many external shocks it had had in the past, but because it was highly degraded, it got pushed over its tipping point and just collapsed. I mean, uh, almost overnight, the soil just blew away. Millions of acres just went turned to dust because the soil lost its biological structure. I and mean, erosion rates when a highly degraded soil is um, hit by drought um, can rise 6,000-fold literally overnight. That's systemic collapse. And... And there was this government report which said um, one man um, um, uh, cannot stop the wind from blowing, but one man can cause it. And what they were acknowledging without knowing it, without having the data to show it, was hysteresis, was this principle that you, know, you, can, you can trigger it quite easily, but you can't reverse it easily. And so there, there has been an intuitive grasp of the properties of complex systems. But actually turning that into a science has taken, well, far too long. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, that it's beginning to go mainstream because of what we understand of what happened in 2008. There was a remarkable moment where um, the Queen uh, asked the uh, uh, Bank of England, why did no one see this coming? And you had all, all these people with enormous brains going, um, uh, 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 I don't know, Your Majesty, <laughs> and, and, so, and shuffling around looking at their feet. And the chief economist of the Bank of England, it was, this was a really inspired decision. He, he went to um, one, of the, one of my old lecturers, actually, um, um, Professor Robert May, who was an ecologist, and you know, us ecologists claim to have invented systems theory. Other people might disagree, but um, certainly e e ecology was very influential in the development of systems theory, and he was one of the um, original people who sort of formalised the mathematics of complex systems. And, um, and, and he said to May, what can we learn from ecology about why the banks um, uh, almost collapsed? And so they wrote a paper together, a really great paper, showing the principles of complex systems and how how the financial system was basically knackered by its own systemic properties, you know, and how, how the banks stripping out resilience, pursuing their own efficiencies, pursuing their own money-making schemes, actually undermined the system as a whole. And Haldane then gave a, a really great speech to the Bank of England explaining using ecological principles what had happened to the financial ecosystem um, and and that was really the first time that systems theory began to penetrate um, um, sort of public consciousness only in a small way only at the fringes you know we're still 
most people wouldn't have a faintest idea what a complex system is, even though they are one. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating, though, to see how it all links together. Um, and, and, and what can we do as individuals what can the listeners do to help because i mean you mentioned the queen and it's it's it is frustrating to see uh, whether it be prince harry or, or other big celebrities who might be you know jet setting around the world on, on private jets and then telling us to sort it sort ourselves out so what what can we do we, we have to mobilize <laughs> that's the most important thing i mean that's the only thing that's ever really changed anything is is mass mobilization is people getting together and say we want it differently you know whether you're mobilizing for um, votes for women or um, against imperialism or for civil rights uh, or against apartheid, um, whatever it is, you know, any gain we've ever made has come about through mobilisation and that it almost inevitably it has to involve civil disobedience. I mean, that's part of it. That's not the whole story, but civil disobedience is a really important part of the story. And every freedom we have has come about through it the fact that you and i are talking freely right now is the result of mass mobilization and civil disobedience the fact that you and i are allowed to vote is the result of mass mobilization and civil disobedience the fact that we have something called the weekend is the result of mass mobilization and civil disobedience literally i mean it, it was u.s u.s textile workers you know who, who um who, who, who mobilized for a sort of formal right to something we now call the weekend um and and all of these things every single improvement of our lives it does not happen passively and it is not handed down from the top i mean sometimes you'll have uh, an enlightened powerful person like say william beveridge um you know who produced his report what in 1942 was it saying you know this is the state we need but that can only happen when there's already been mobilization of people you know there already was a labor party which had emerged from the, from the labor movement there was um, a, a a liberal party which was trying to sort of bridge the gap between the old establishment and 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 the new mobilizations and um and there were massive demands for a fairer settlement you know when we come out of this war with hitler we want a different nation we don't want things to be the same as they were before and so your know, beverage was able to use those demands and say okay this is what a different nation would look like and Keynes was was able to build in it and tell a new story of what an economy would look like and um uh, and uh, you know none of this can just simply be handed down even if we had totally benign leaders which you know has never happened in human history um and they had only the the best intentions they couldn't do it themselves because they'd be up against all the other people within the establishment um, all the other forms of vested power of legacy industries of of of, of legacy interests which don't want things to change because the current system rewards them very well and and so they could not do it without the change created by mass mobilization that is where it starts and um and so yeah you know we're told always well you know buy buy a different kind of 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 pencil or something you know and it's like oh bollocks you know that is that 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 isn't how things change you know yeah we've got to you know try to minimize our own impacts but we're far more powerful as citizens than we are as consumers yeah we need to well, stop them 
stop them getting away with you know not taxing the big corporations for yeah, example yeah. if we were angrier about that let me ask you if you're if you're driving to an important meeting and then someone gets out in front of you and and sticks their tongue to the road or whatever uh are you annoyed because you've got an important meeting to get because because oh, sorry i should say because they're protesting for climate change and stuff uh not, not just because they're sticking their tongue to the road um was a tongue it probably wasn't their tongue was it but or someone did i think got the tongue stuck but but do you join them <laughs> or, or are you annoyed or is it okay to be both annoyed and thinking oh it's it's good that they're doing this i would not be driving to the meeting no. <laughs> sorry to undermine the basis of your question but i would absolutely not be driving to the meeting okay cycling and they're in the way uh yes if i was cycling to the meeting um i mean yes i'd be far more inclined to join them than to protest against them and in fact i i got arrested with extinction rebellion a couple of years back and um i'm currently thinking about planning my next arrest i, I know that sounds a bit weird but yeah, yeah, i'm so busy that i have to find a time slot where i can i've got time to get arrested and all the stuff that follows from it um but no and and, and in the meantime you know i i really salute these people who are putting their liberty on the line i mean the, here's the extraordinary thing that these totally peaceful protesters, a lot of them have been thrown in remand and they've been there for months, for six months or more. They, what does that mean? Uh, it means that the government won't grant them bail and so before their trial, they're kept in prison. And and it's, um, and it's so they're just stuck there. You know, they haven't been tried, they haven't been found innocent or guilty, but they're in prison indefinitely. You know, there's no sign of when they're going to go to trial, partly because the money for the courts has been cut so much through austerity that they just can't process um, the, the people awaiting trial. But also they haven't been granted bail. I mean, you know, these aren't you know, terrorists. The, the, these aren't uh, mass murderers. The, these are peaceful democratic protesters trying to do what has granted us all our liberties and all our freedoms and everything good in life and they're trying to prevent the collapse of earth systems and 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 you know it's it's obviously policy they're being thrown into remand and kept there in limbo without trial um so you know this makes the actions of protesters even more courageous than they were before. I, I suppose there's a lot of people saying, you know, I, I needed to get to a doctor's appointment and this kind of thing. So there's always sort of different uh, freedoms that are weighed up. Those people, when they protest, are restricting other people's freedoms for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, it has been ever thus. I mean, every single effective protest in history people have said oh you're messing up my life you know, get out of the way you scum i mean the things the things they said about the suffragettes you know the suffer you know we, we say oh yes the wonderful suffragettes we all think they're marvelous and we even put up statues to them in london and um and <clears throat> everyone agrees that their cause was right and just that sure as heck wasn't the, t the case at the time they were demonized very similarly to how protesters today are demonized same with the civil rights movement you know if, um, martin luther king is um, a great hero to the great majority of americans at the time he 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 was just his name was ground into the dust you know he was he was hated and reviled and there were all these campaigns of demonization against him and eventually as you know he was murdered um, and and you know doubtless a high proportion of people in the U.S. were very glad that he was murdered. 
And, you know, it's only in retrospect that we, we see him as a universal hero. And so it's always the case, and you're always told, this is illegitimate, it is wrong that you are making a nuisance of yourself. Why don't you write to your MP? Yeah, well, why don't we write to our MPs? <laughs> because it doesn't work. <laughs> it's useless. There'll be people watching it, because, you know, YouTube is always both sides, and there'll be people being annoyed. But I would just encourage anyone watching or listening to just think, you know, whether you agree or not, these people are really putting their bodies and their liberty on the line in a way that I, I know that I'm not really willing or likely to do about things I'm passionate about. So so they deserve our respect for that. They're incredibly brave. Um, I mean, you, you take a look at our system, you know, what it tells you is, you know, trust in us, we'll look after you, we're the government. Um, what you do is you put a cross on a piece of paper and then for the next four or five years, whether or not you voted for us, you are deemed to have consented to everything we're going to do. Everything that's in our manifesto, if we're the winning party, um, which of course you won't have read because probably less than 1% of the population actually reads the manifesto. Oh, and everything that's not in the manifesto, but we're going to do anyway, like cutting taxes for the wealthiest people and uh, you know, all the other dreadful things that Liz Truss is doing and tearing down the planning rules and ripping up our wildlife rules and all that. We're going to do all that as well, even things which were the opposite of what we said in the manifesto. But that's fine because you are presumed to have consented to everything we do because you put a cross on a piece of paper even if it was for another party. We don't accept the principle of presumed consent in sex. Why do we accept it in politics? Bloody hell, George. Yeah, it's it's very, very complicated. I mean, as you know, this is it's all complicated systems and things. And, and most people vote just because they're angry at the other party more than their party. And the things are complicated. I mean, look, I lived in South America for about 10 years. Um, and obviously, it makes you cautious of both the right and the left. And I was living, uh, I spent six years in Argentina. Um, and they have obviously had right-wing dictatorships but they've also have this they have this left-wing strain uh, i would say the people tend to think in a left-wing way left-wing populism and there's just no one wants to invest in the country it can't grow it can't you know so is that i mean is that the uh, the opposite extreme i mean the, the 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 fundamental problem is first of all who who wields power you know that that's who, who wields power and how do they wield it and Everywhere we have an elite consensus between the right wing and the sort of centrists and the liberal left who all broadly agree on almost everything. They'll disagree on a few details, exactly what the distribution of tax should be, exactly how much should be going into what public service and stuff and, and details about how those public services are run. But they'll broadly agree on almost everything. And most importantly, they broadly agree to ignore almost all the most important issues, in, including the environmental issues. Um, and the question is what we do about that. And, and my response to that is a radical redistribution of power. We now have all these fantastic tools for building deliberative and participatory democracies, democracies where instead of putting a cross on a piece of paper once every four or five years, we can engage politically all the time or as often as we want to now a classic example of participatory democracy you're talking about latin america is porto alegre in southern brazil um, their participatory budgeting program which um is now pretty well being gutted but between um uh, 1989 and 2004 
the people of the city created their own budget every year. They decided how the money was going to be spent through this massive mass participation meetings in all the neighbourhoods of the city and a very cleverly structured way of then consolidating all the decisions they make and and creating a coherent budget out of that. And what we saw in Porto Alegre, it was really extraordinary. It went from being almost at the bottom of the human development index in Brazil um, because of corruption, mafia, I mean, clientelism. It, it was, you know, all, all the public money was going on contracts for my brother-in-law or contracts for my cousin or contracts for some mafiosi who I owe, owe money to, or whatever it might be, you know, it was just totally corrupt. Um, and there was just this complete shift of how money was spent. And it went into primary health care, um, women's health, uh, public transport, education, sanitation, uh, um, clean water, sewerage, all, all, all of these crucial things. And Porto Alegre went from being almost at the bottom to the very top of Brazil's human development index. Trust in people. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, and people, and there was this extraordinary phenomenon, which no po political scientist would ever predict could ever happen, of people demonstrating in the streets for their taxes to be raised. Because when they were in charge, when they were determining how that tax money was to be spent, they could see that they could get so much more done if they pooled their money than if they were trying to spend that money individually. So if you look at transport, for instance, you, know, you can buy a banged up old car for $2,000 and then spend two hours getting stuck in traffic in what was a horrendous traffic situation every morning and two hours getting stuck in traffic in the afternoon when you come back from work. Um, or you could contribute $100 a year to um, a fast, efficient public transport system which gets you to work in 20 minutes. It's a much more efficient allocation of your own money. And, and people could see that as soon as they were the ones in charge, as soon as they were the ones who were spending the money, they could suddenly see, oh, it just makes much more sense to do it that way. But if it's some distant authority which takes your money <clears throat> and then decides how to spend it and very often spends it corruptly, and that is the case in almost every nation on earth, um, you know, even those which consider themselves squeaky clean, there's always corruption. Or they misspend it, they misallocate it, they... Yeah, they just, I mean, even if it's not directly corrupt, you favour the rich above the poor because they have the loudest voices and they, they have the media at their disposal. And so so the spending is distorted. But when it, it, it's the people who decide, it's just better for everyone. It just makes a functional city or indeed a functional nation because there's no reason why you can't do that at the national level instead. So just imagine instead of this mini budget that Kwasi Kwarteng has given us, which has basically tanked the economy because he was giving it all away to the ultra rich, we had a budget which was developed by the people. Imagine what it would look like. You know, we wouldn't be cutting rates of tax for the for the richest people in the country. We'd be 
massively reinvesting in the National Health Service. We would be repairing schools and giving them the budgets to take children out of the classroom and uh, on field trips. We would be um, um, defending our, our, our green spaces. We, we would be ensuring that there was social housing built. We'd be ensuring that existing housing had insulation, all, you know, all the good things. We would invest in public transport. We would uh, just make every public service work for us. And, and, and so you know, we're rightly suspicious of taxation because it's not always clear that it's being done in our best interests. I suppose I think of like all the football teams in Argentina as well who are owned by the, the fans and they all just became mad mafias and stuff. But that is a football team and that's a different profile of person uh, in charge. Look, there's no, there's no guarantee. You know, there's no magic formula where you say, right, we've fixed it now and that's it fixed forever. <laughs> you know, um, in all politics, it's a constant struggle. You know, it requires constant renewal. Um, democracy has to be rebuilt every day, really. You know, you, you just have to keep, be constantly vigilant. You know, you can have, um, we had at one point a really good planning system in this country. Well, you know, as good as you get anywhere, not ideal, but, but much better than in many other countries. And that's now being dismantled. Uh, very very quickly by this government and so we have to fight for the planning system all over again and you know, I would like to have a much better planning system we got so some of us have put forward some proposals for a far better one than we have but right now we have to defend the not altogether brilliant one we have against something much much worse we've got 10 minutes left and you've you've you live such a fascinating life that i i can't avoid wanting to get into it um can you i mean why were you sentenced to life imprisonment in indonesia well it wasn't very hard to upset the suharto dictatorship um, <laughs> but i i went to some lengths um i'd uh um I, I was investigating the, this horrendous transmigration program where like, hundreds of thousands of people were being moved with US money, World Bank money, UK money from the inner islands, from Bali and Java, um, to the outer islands of Indonesia, including occupied territories like West Papua. And, um, and myself and the photographer I was working with, Adrian Arpid, we, we weren't allowed to to i mean you, you there was no means of investigating any of this stuff legitimately it was you know it was a very brutal dictatorship indeed and Saharto killed some something around a million people um and um and so we forged travel documents uh we we um actually i stole a pad of head and notepaper from the office of the head of immigration police in 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 jakarta and uh, we wrote ourselves a letter on it and uh, I, I wrote a book which told the story of the horrendous things that were happening but also the story of how we told the story and for some reason i can't quite put my finger on the government was quite upset by it and um and in its, in its entirely rational and proportionate way, sentenced me in, in absentia to life imprisonment. Um, but, um, but I decided, uh, you know, and, and you, know, you, might, you might call me a wimp, but I decided not to go back to Indonesia to, to see out the sentence. <laughs> yeah, certainly not a wimp. I, I can't believe some of the things you... Because that reminds me, I always think of that thing in North Korea. Do you remember that American student moved a poster mm. and then he was yeah. dead within a few weeks? Like, yeah. I, I don't know how you do things like that in different countries and places. I, I couldn't do that. It's, uh, I, mean, I mean, there's 
there are so many courageous people around you know and, and it's the courage of other people that of has created our freedoms you know that is what that's where they come from you were shot at and beaten up by military police where was that that was in brazil yeah um yes again they got irrationally upset by um, some of the, i i was um investigating these land seizures in the state of maranhão um in the northeast of brazil and um and just happened to be in exactly the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time depending on your perspective and um and was able um with the help of these really brilliant um campaigners these the peasants themselves who were being kicked off the land to find out everyone who was doing it to um show the involvement of the police the, judici the judiciary and everything and the police took great exception to that. Well, I got beaten up by by hired gunmen, um, pistoleros, um, um, and then um, very nearly got shot by the police and basically had to leg it. It was, um, you know, um, very, it was very close. Uh, my death was misreported in parts of the Brazilian press. Um, uh, but yeah, it was inaccurate uh, journalism. Yeah, what was that famous expression? Thoughts of my death. Are, oh, uh, reports of my it? death have been exaggerated. Yes, <laughs> Mark Twain, I think. Yeah. Um, what What did it feel like? You're getting like beaten up by police. Did you Did you fear for your life? Do you fear? Do you have that same fear the rest of us have as an intrepid journalist? I mean, I, I think there is probably a bit of the brain missing because um, I, I I have a very weak survival instinct. I, I mean, I think. I think in reality we all have a much weaker survival instinct than we think because we put other things above our own survival. You know, we see this with you know our approach to climate and and so many. I don't. Well, well, you probably do. I mean, <laughs> you, when we look at our collective survival, but above all, you know, we put our instinct to obey above our instinct to survive. You know, we'll do what we're told, even if it leads to our deaths, and that you know, history has many, many examples of that. Um, well, that's that's our fundamental flaw. That's the kink in the human brain, our perennial weakness, which always undermines us. So it could be that maybe you know my survival instinct, instinct is also uh, is, is is weak in common with other people, but my obedience instinct is also very weak, um, and and I'm I just don't accept other people's power. Um, I don't accept that they should exercise power over me. And but I was. I was slightly mad when I was when I was in my twenties. You know, this is this is how wars get fought. You think you're invulnerable, you know. You think you know, other people can die, but I can't. And and there were many moments when you know it should have been clear to me that I was perfectly capable of dying, but somehow this sort of ridiculous confidence of youth just sees you through. And you know, I'm glad I had it. You know, I'm glad I, I wasn't on the straight and level that I was slightly unhinged because. Um, I would have had a much duller life if if I hadn't been. That must be the I, I don't have kids, but it must be the the peril of of having children because you're so worried. Then you know because you remember they they think that life is worthless that they could just do whatever. And at the same time, you obviously want them to have a rebellious streak and to take risks and those kinds of things. You must be in two two minds. Well, my my daughters are a lot uh, a lot saner than I ever was, <laughs> and my sort of perennial message to them is, is don't do anything that I did um, and they they just both of them say no, I've got no inclination to do any any of those things 
You were um, in a poisoned coma from hornets. There was a Futurama episode, like a really good one about about exactly that. Oh, was there? Oh, right. I must I must check that out. Yeah, I got um, I got stung um, um, by a whole load of these big um, forest hornets in West Papua. Um, I bumped into this tree stump where they had their nest, um, and um, actually it's, it's a crazy story because I, I went running. I, it was in an area of forest, Sweden agriculture, where where uh, some trees had been cut and burned, and others were still standing. And the the house of the people who who cut the forest um, was standing on stilts in 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 the middle of it. And um, so I ran to this house uh, after it had been stung by. Um, I think eight hornets, and um, and <clears throat> and and got to the bottom of the ladder. And this was very, uh, it was way off the ground, about fifteen feet up, on stilts, and was sh- shouting for help. And and no one came out, so I climbed up the ladder and 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 came into the house. And there was this terrified-looking family, you know, <laughs> this sort of crazy crazy guy with staring eyes oh. and hair, hair sticking up and I'd ripped my shirt off because I'd been sort of whacking the hornets with it and stuff and, and I was shaking and I, and I said no 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 it's fine it's fine it's fine don't be scared but you need to help me because I've I've just I've been bitten I, I didn't know the word for stung I've been bitten by um, eight insects and now I'm going to die and um and they were like, oh, yeah, who is this lunatic? <laughs> what language was this? This was in Indonesian. Um, so I said it again. And they were like, even more terrified. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? You know, and I thought, I, you know please, you've got to listen. I've, I've, I've been, I, I was walking through your field. I, I bumped into a tree. I was attacked by insects. Eight of them bit me, and now I'm going to die. And this guy suddenly goes, ah, Saranga, and I say, yeah, yeah, Saranga, and I realised that instead of Saranga, which is insects, I'd been saying Samanka, which is watermelons. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. How, how many how many languages do you speak? Oh, no, I, I'm not a great linguist. I mean, I've I've you know learnt enough. Yeah, I learnt Indonesian and Swahili and uh, Portuguese and bits and pieces i mean uh, portuguese i ended up speaking pro- uh, properly but um you know I'm, I'm, I, I just do my best and learn enough to to get by watermelon insects and a few other words yes as you see not quite enough <laughs> not imagine quite that enough. imagine being at home and someone just like climbs through your window with the top <laughs> off going a watermelon bit me i've been attacked by watermelons <laughs> eight of them bit me <laughs> Yeah. Oh my word! And then, what they got you to the hospital? And no, no, were- no. So it got even even more farcical because because the guy, I mean, it, you know, like everyone there, just most delightful, hospitable people. And the guy said, "Right, okay, calm down. It's okay. It's okay. I'll sort you out." So so he made me lie down, and he started rubbing something into my back, and I had this amazing, warming, soothing sensation. I thought this is going to be some ancient cure. You know, from some forest plant which you know has evolved over generations to deal with hornet stings and rubbing it. And as it went on, I, I began to smell something familiar. I thought, oh, I know that smell. And I turned round, and it was Vic's vapor rub. And I said, "That's not going to cure me, no!" And so I oh, just man. run. I run because I thought I've got to get to a hospital. So I run out of the house, forgetting it's fifteen feet off the ground. And so it's like the cartoon where your legs are moving, and you just, 
and 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 as I hit the ground, I just keep running. I mean, I was so wow. so Survi- survival instincts. Well, yeah, and and I just run and run and run, and eventually get to the road I'd come from. This was just outside the town of Jaipur. You know, I wasn't in in the sort of deep deep forest. I was I was I I'd been waiting, I'd been trying to contact a rebel movement and. We waited weeks just, and so I'd just gone for a walk, you know, that, that was all. So, and I stopped this minibus, public transport is these um, little minibuses there, and, and, and jumped on, and, and that was when the convulsion started. I started convulsing, and, 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 and people were like moving away from me in the minibus, and I'd say, no, 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 it's, it's all right, it's all right, I got, I got. I got uh, bitten by insects, I <laughs> got it right that time. And anyway, but then I, I soon wasn't able to talk and I was just convulsing and convulsing and, and foaming and it was really frightening, really frightening. And then I I got into the the town square at the time it was a tiny little town. It was the capital of West Papua, but it was, you know, just a few thousand people. And um the um hotel where where me and Adrian the photographer was staying were just uh, was just there and um and I managed to get to our room and I just collapsed. I just fell onto the bed and and uh, that I was on. And Adrian said to me, "Shit, you look terrible. What's going on?" And I said, um, I, "I pointed to these great lumps on my body, you know." So and he immediately twigged it. He just immediately knew what the problem was, and and he stuffed me with antihistamine. He gave me several antihistamine pills, and and that's the last thing I remember. I was like just out then for sixteen hours. Um, and and just very shallow breathing and sort of apparently covered in like film of sweat and 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 but it passed off and I came out the other side. Amazing that you're still alive. And then there was <laughs> yeah. a time when you were pronounced clinically dead, or was that the same? Oh yeah, no, that was a different occasion. That was um, with cerebral malaria, another misdiagnosis, incidentally, um, uh, where um, I'd uh, yeah, I completely. I was in um, um, northwest Kenya in the Turkana district, and um, I'd completely. I was by myself at the time. I misdiagnosed what was wrong with me. I thought I had a dysentery. Treated myself for dysentery, and it just got worse and worse. And um, and eventually, in the middle of the night, I staggered out of the guest house where I was staying, and I collapsed in the road. And and luckily, I mean, it was incredibly fortunate. You know, it was the only place in the whole district with a hospital because I, I'd, I'd come back to this small town, having been out with the Turkana for several weeks. Um, I'd come back to um, sort a few things out and turn around, and, and you know, had it been anywhere else, I would have been a goner. I got picked up and carried into this hospital and again I blacked out and I woke up and I had no idea what was going on. I was staring into someone's eyes about four inches away and as I was looking into his eyes this guy died. Um, it was it was just I could not I couldn't get my head around what was happening and, and it was this hospital ward where the beds had been pushed together in twos because there was no space. Um, we were just lying on bare springs. There were no mattresses. Um, there was no electricity. Um, it, uh, it was, you know, I mean, it's this is this is how people have to live. It's these horrendous conditions, you know, just a lack of money for public services. And then the doctor came round, and he was like, uh, after quite a while, because there was only one doctor for the whole hospital at the time, and he was like, "Whoa, 
Well, you're still alive. <laughs> Look, I had you written down as dead. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so, and and I, I, you know, they'd pumped me full of intravenous chloroquine and then stopped because I, I seemed to have lost function. And somehow I came back. Um, I, I, I had this weird sensation. I mean, it was all below consciousness of just sort of feed, feeling this sort of these hot coals at the end of my fingers and everything else was dead. It was sort of, everything else was black. And then the heat gradually coming back from my fingertips and into the rest of my body. It was very strange. And then later on, the the, 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 the one nurse was, was coming around and I, I said, um, could you, is there anything you can do about that tap dripping under my bed? Because it's driving me mad. It's like drip, drip, drip. And it's like Chinese water torture. And she said, there's no tap under your bed. And I said, I can hear it. I can hear the tap. She said, no, no, no that's you. That's you sweating. <laughs> and Bloody I mean, this, this ward was a scene from hell. I mean, there were lots of people. I mean, the man next to me had died of AIDS. There were a lot of people dying of AIDS. This was in, um, in 1992. Um, there were people with injuries from warfare because there'd been a great deal of fighting. They had bullet wounds, axe wounds. Um, and um, a lot of victims of car crashes. And of course, they just there weren't the facilities and the budget to treat people properly. And, um, and people were in agony. I mean, screaming with agony you know, all through the night. And it was just, uh, uh, um, you know, I really got a feeling for what it is to, to live in, in, in a poorer nation at that point. Mm. Well, I'm happy you survived, George. And I hope that um, people listening see the kind of things us journalists, I'm, putting, I'm grouping myself in, <laughs> what we go through to bring you things like this podcast episode. Uh, between us, that's quite a lot of uh, near-death experiences. Uh, mm. George, where do you want to send people? You know, Twitter, pages, books, what do you want? Yeah, well, um, so, yeah, our latest book is called Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. Um, I write stuff for The Guardian. Um, I've got, yeah, Twitter is uh, at George Monbiot. Um, I've got a website, monbiot.com, and various other social media stuff. Yeah, It's been fantastic, and thank you for being on The Edge. Thanks, Andrew. Great to talk to you. Thank you to my lovely guest George Monbiot for joining me on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Some fascinating thoughts, theories and philosophies about lots of things I didn't really know about. So I learned a heck of a lot about complex systems affecting finances, climate and everything else. Remember to get George's book to learn more. Read Genesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. It's in all the usual places. Go to his website monbiot.com to find out more and follow him on Twitter. Please do support this podcast by following or supporting or whatever it might be on patreon.com slash andrewgold and leave a review on Apple. I'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.